Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi folks and welcome to today's episode and Paulie, today we're going to be talking about the Kurds. That's right Mikey, I'm going to look at three heroes today rather than howlers and they're all Kurds, Kurdish from that great put upon people who, you know, history seems to always have shortchanged, certainly in terms of a homeland, a home state to call their own, more of which we'll talk about later. But the reason I was so interested to do this episode, Mikey, is that not only are they three very different heroes I've got for you today from very different eras, there's also a subtler distinction, which I think is very illuminating and one which is often passed over or ignored. You see, in these three heroes, hopefully will become clear, on the one hand, we have heroes, capital H, you know, heroes of history, who just happen to be Kurds and Kurdish. And then on the other, we have what I'd say are called Kurdish heroes, heroes of the Kurdish race, the Kurdish people. You mean more like champions of the Kurdish cause. That's exactly right, Mikey. And like I said, I think there's an important and telling difference. Okay, mate, so who's first up? Okay, so my first hero for today is none other than that great anti-crusader warrior and commander, Saladin. Saladin, right. And and look, you see, I I didn't know he was actually a Kurd. Well, that's it, Mikey. Few people do. Most people put him down either as an Arab or, you know, they use that loose term, you know, Saracen, which is a sort of generic one-size-fits-all that was used to describe any foreign Near Eastern person at the time, particularly you know, in the context of the Crusades. But the reality is Saladin, and in actual fact that's only a nom de guerre, Mikey, that means the righteous of the faith, Saladin, his proper name, his Kurdish name, is Yusuf ibn Ayyub ibn Shadi. And like all his family, he was a sunny Muslim Kurd, and like many Kurds, he was born in the northern half of what's modern-day Iraq. He's actually born in the city of Tikrit, about halfway between Baghdad and the city in the region which has always been most strongly associated with the Kurds, the city of Mosul. Now, like we said in that earlier at Mikey, Saladin made his name during what we call the Crusades, and the Third Crusade in particular, when he was very much the nemesis of the man you described as a more of a moggy heart than a lion heart, Good old Richard I of England. Yeah, don't get me started on that toss pot. <laughs> yes, well, as you rightly pointed out in that ep, Mikey, Richard did have a couple of shortcomings. And in terms of crusading prowess, he certainly came off second best against my man today, Saladin. But it's not just the fact that Saladin got the better of Richard and won back Jerusalem from the Crusaders and scored the critical victory of the Battle of Hattin in 1187. In my opinion, just as importantly, Saladin also turned the tables in the Muslim world. How come? Well, like I said, Saladin and his family, they'd come from northern Iraq, and he first made a name for himself as the right-hand man to his uncle, a guy called Shirku, who's a general in the army under that other great crusader name on the Muslim side. Nur ad-Din. Nur ad-Din, right. 
Now, Saladin and Shirku and Nuruddin, they're all Sunni Muslims from the north, which have been part of the old Seljuk Empire. But, like so many generals and leaders over the centuries, they knew that the greatest wealth was to be had further south down in Egypt. Egypt again. I mean, like we said in those ancient Rome episodes, the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. And, and, and Egypt's also in control of those key trade routes through the Red Sea and beyond. Precisely. But the interesting point during this period, Mikey, you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, during this period, Egypt is under the control of the powerful Fatimid dynasty. And this dynasty was particularly significant in the Muslim world because its leaders were followers of the Shia Islam rather than Sunnis. Right. But Saladin, he's the one who changes all that. He's not happy with seeing off Richard and Count Baldwin and all the Crusader knights in arms. He also topples the Egyptian Fatimids and sets up his own new dynasty, the Ayyubids. And so he wins control of Egypt, he wins control of the Red Sea, he then moves to proclaim himself Sultan of Syria, and he actually seeks to ally himself with Egypt's traditional enemies, the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad. And that's a reversal that, as we shall see, would have repercussions for centuries to come. OK, Paulie, so today we're talking about the Kurds. That's right, and so we've had Saladin, one of history's great heroes, and someone perhaps who we didn't all realise was Kurdish. Yeah, me in particular, I didn't know that, but I'm glad you told me. <laughs> but there's one other extra detail, Mike, which I didn't include in that first part of the show, and it's a detail that in many ways is indicative of today's story. You see, as successful as Saladin was, you know, Sultan of Egypt, Sultan of Syria, conqueror of Jerusalem, and you know, General Crusader Knight's Nightmare, the one city that Saladin never got his hands on was Mosul. This despite Saladin being a figurehead for the Kurds at the time, and despite Mosul, as we said in the first part of the show, Mosul, up in the northern part of modern-day Iraq, being the largest Kurdish city, if you like, in the region, and the closest the Kurds have come to having their own capital in their own state. Right, because these days Mosul is seen as the key city for the Kurds, their heartland. Correct. Yet the local powers that be at the time, they were enemies of Saladin and refused to accede to his demands. So Mosul, the great Kurdish city, was never controlled by Saladin, the great Kurdish ruler. So I think if we're ever going to understand the Kurdish dilemma, Mikey, we first need to take a closer look at just why this was and why, right up to today, it's so critical. OK. OK, so as we said, the vast majority of Kurds today are Muslims, and they're mostly Sunni Muslims, but there are also Shia Muslim Kurds, Christians, even Jewish and Yazidi communities within the Kurdish people. And this religious diversion starts to make sense when we realise that the Kurds, the ethnic Kurdish people, they predate not just the coming of Islam, but most of the other religions in the region too. You see, Mikey, the Kurdish heartland doesn't just cover Mosul and northern Iraq. It's also got territory in what's now northwestern Iran, northern Syria, and of course, <laughs> that big story over more recent years, the Kurds of southeast Turkey. Right, that's what's been in the news about you know, the PKK insurgency, Abdullah Ocalan and all those guys. Right, because historically, even though the word Kurdistan has been used since the 11th century, yeah, since Seljuk times, there have always been a whole host of disparate, if not entirely separate, 
Kurdish dynasties, emirates, principalities and chiefdoms, many dating back to the 8th century in the time of Muhammad, some of them even further. Now, if you add into this mix the fact that the Near East, where the Kurds have always lived, yeah. this area where the Mediterranean meets Asia, this has probably been the most fought over territory in the history of history. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, going back to the Persians, Alexander, the Romans versus the Parthians, the Crusades, the Mongols, the Ottomans, yeah, right through to World War II, really. The Near East has been a centre of controversy. So it's probably no surprise to find that the Kurds have often been treated like pawns in the game and have had to constantly shift and change allegiances. If not divide amongst themselves in order just to survive. Exactly. And so unfortunately, over the centuries, the chances of a fully-fledged united Kurdistan, yeah, they've been few and far between to say the least. But I suppose the biggest nail in the coffin came after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One, when the Allies... So, you know, they started sharing out the spoils amongst themselves. Now, at first, interestingly, under the initial terms, what became the never-to-be-ratified Treaty of Sev, the chance of the Kurds having their own recognised homeland actually seemed quite high. In fact, we have several documents referring to a Kurdish state, even the Kingdom of Kurdistan, and this lasts right into the 1920s as far as 1924. But with the revival of Turkey under Ataturk, much of this territory was absorbed back under Turkish control. And despite Kurdish attempts, attempts that included the creation of a red Kurdistan from 1923 to 1929, the creation of the Republic of Ararat in 1927, 1930, even the Republic of Mahabad in 1946 within what's now Iran. Despite all these attempts, the real opportunity for a fully independent Kurdish nation state had been spiked. And unfortunately, the final Treaty of Lausanne between the Allies, that closes the door on their dream for a whole generation. But I can see by the glint in your eye, Paulie, you're about to get ancient on us, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's right, Maggie, because to demonstrate just how integral the Kurds are and have been to this region and how historically, you know, they're a match for all their neighbours, be they Persian, Jewish, Armenian, I want to tell you about my second hero today, Kawa or Kave the Blacksmith. Okay, Carve the Blacksmith, I'm showing my ignorance here. I've actually never heard of him, so, so please go on, mate. <laughs> All right, so Carve, he's actually an ancient figure dating back probably into the mists of time some 3,000 years before the Common Era. And he's remembered for leading the Great Rebellion to oust the dreaded Assyrian tyrant, King Zahak, who had tried to conquer the ancient Iranians with his Assyrian army. Now, it's all told in the classic epic poem Shahnameh, which was most famously brought together by that great Persian genius Fadozi in the 10th century. And one of the key elements is that while he's waiting for his supporters to gather for the rebellion, Kaveh, he's forced to go flee and hide up in the mountains, the Alborz Mountains, which is in Damavand, which is modern-day northern Iran between Tehran and the Caspian Sea. Now, it's in these same mountains, the Alborz, that the Kurds claim their ancestors also hid out while they too were trying to escape persecution from that evil Assyrian king, Zahak. And it's through this meeting, Mikey, this union between Kaveh and the Kurds, that the Kurds say the whole Kurdish ethnicity, if you like, was born. And to this day, Mikey, in fact, the symbol of a blacksmith's apron, a leather apron raised on a spear, it's still very much recognised as a symbol of resistance and the fight against foreign oppression. 
And I suppose the most important thing about this hero, Paulie, is that he predates many of the other inhabitants of this region. I mean, he predates Christianity, predates Muhammad and Islam. And most of all, Mikey, particularly in terms of the modern politics we were talking about earlier, Carve and the subsequent beginnings for the Kurds, they predate by centuries the arrival of the Turks from their original nomadic step home back in Central Asia. All right, Mikey, so that's two out of three, and that brings us to someone who I think is really the most interesting hero today. Yeah, like I said at the top of the show, I think there's a real distinction here between heroes, capital H, who also happen to be Kurdish, and then nailed-on Kurdish heroes, someone the Kurds hold dearer than anyone. So the last person I want to talk about today is one of those. It's a guy called Mustafa Barzani, also known as Mela Mustafa. Right, gotcha. All right. So Mustafa Barzani, he's born in 1903, a Kurd obviously, and he's born in Barzan, a village in the south of Kurdish territory, what is now northern Iraq. But he's imprisoned, Mikey, by the authorities, the Ottomans, when he's only three years old, and his father, his grandfather and his brother are all executed. Now, the Ottomans, of course, you know, they're replaced by the British and the French after World War I, but the Kurdish grievances, they remain... And at a very early age, Mustafa goes to join a revolt of various Kurdish chiefs, the chiefs of the Az-Zibar, against the British. And then in 1931, he follows another brother, Sheikh Ahmed Barzani, to lead an insurrection against Baghdad's attempts to break up tribal power in the Kurdish regions. And in 1939, he's involved in the formation of the political party Hiwa, or Hope, the first ever Kurdish political party in Iraq. Okay, so he comes from pretty auspicious beginnings, but during World War II, things start to get complicated because the Soviet Union, you know, once it realises that Hitler is going to be defeated, it turns its attention to undermining the Allies, of course, but not just in Eastern Europe, actually all over the Near and Middle East as well. And in Iran in 1945, the USSR, it actually backs the establishment of a new Kurdish state separate and independent in the northeast of what is now Iran, and they start supplying it with money and weapons. And this is so successful, Mikey, that in December 1945, a guy called Qazi Mohammed, an associate of the Barzani family and the leader of the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the KDP, he's able to declare an independent Kurdish Republic of Mahabad. And my man, Mustafa Barzani, he's appointed the Minister of Defence and Commander of the Kurdish Army. Great! <laughs> well, yes, but unfortunately, almost immediately, Mikey, the Kurds once again get shortchanged in the merry-go-round of global politics. You know, this time it's with the Yalta Agreement following the Great Conference at the end of World War II, and suddenly the Soviets are leaving their Kurdish allies high and dry. Oh, really? I mean, we've heard that one before. Yes, and of course, it's left to Barzani and his followers to pick up the pieces. Yeah, at first they head to regroup in the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, then the Azerbaijani SSSR, and finally in 1948, they end up in what is now Uzbekistan. Right, so if they're hiding out of the USSR, they must be still getting some support from the Soviets? Yes, they are, Mikey, that's true. But really, the whole region now is in such a mess at this point, yeah, with the British Empire having collapsed and everyone feeling their way into the Cold War. To be honest, no one really knows whose side they want to be on, and it pretty much becomes every man for himself. So, Barzani stuck behind the Iron Curtain in the Uzbek capital Tashkent as part of the USSR, 
but he does manage to return to Iraq in 1958 as part of the Republican coup that overthrows the Hashemite monarchy, which had been set up by the British. And as part of that coup, with a deal he manages to broker, the Kurds are granted more rights and things look like they're finally on the up. In fact, yeah, the provisional Iraqi constitution from the time even stated that the Kurds and the Arabs would be equal partners in the same nation. But as usual, the optimism is short-lived and Barzani is essentially outmaneuvered by the new military ruler in Iraq, a guy called Al-Karim Qasim. And that was in 1958, you say? Yeah, that was in 58. And then we get another coup in 63. And after this coup, relations between the Kurds and the Arabs, they quickly start turning sour. In fact, by March 1965, you've actually got open hostilities and a massive military operation in northern Iraq that saw nearly 100,000 soldiers deployed by the Iraqi government to fight Barzani and his loyal Kurdish troops, who by this stage are known as the Peshmerga. Peshmerga? We've all heard of them. I mean, they're still going up until today. That's right, Mike, and they've continued to be a powerful force on behalf of the Kurdish cause. But at the same time, you won't be surprised to hear that back at this time, you also get a repeat of the classic old Baghdad strategy of trying to play one Kurdish faction off against the other. Sure. So things hit a bit of an impasse, but then we have the big one, the 1968 Baathist coup in Iraq. And it's as part of this new beginning that you have on the one side the KDP negotiating for the Kurds in the north, and on the other you've got Saddam Hussein negotiating for the government in Baghdad. And in fact, the final agreement which is reached in 1970, that agreement from the Kurdish point of view looks pretty positive. The terms of the agreement actually recognise the existence of the Kurdish people, the Kurdish language is declared a second official language within the country and Kurdish autonomy is set to be guaranteed in northern Iraq. I'm sort of dreading asking this question, <laughs> but it, it would have seemed at this point your man Barzini has done it. <laughs> yes, well, we, yeah, we'd all wish so, but don't forget, <laughs> this is Saddam Hussein we're talking about, Mikey. And unfortunately, in 1971, in September, an assassination attempt takes place against Barzani, probably Saddam, but it's never been proven, and the whole agreement falls apart. Now, look, Mikey, I do need to point out here that, you know, that Barzani, he can't be considered an unblemished hero, you know, completely free of blame, because like I said, every man really was out for himself at this time, and even Barzani's most ardent admirers will tell you, you know, he was ruthless, and his opponents, because we have to remember the Kurds at the time, you know, they had factions like they've always had and still have today, most notably Barzani's rivals in the PUK. Ah, the other big Kurdish political party. Yeah, that's right. So they and you know his other opponents, they'll argue that in many ways, Barzani was as much to blame for the collapse of the agreement with the Iraqi government as Saddam was. Yeah, and also for the subsequent collapse in 1975 of a second agreement, which was brokered by the Algerian government. But either way, you know, within... Days of that Algiers Accord, unfortunately, Mikey, Barzani and nearly 100,000 followers, they leave Iraq, you know, they swap sides, if you like, and they go to fight with Iraq's direct enemy, Iran. Oh, and we all know how that went. Yes, that's right. And of course, you know, the Iran-Iraq war would go on for decades. And unfortunately, Barzani, he dies while still in exile on March the 1st in 1979, and of course, the following years for the Kurds were as bad as it ever got with Saddam's gassing and bombing campaign against the Kurdish region in the 80s. So all in all, that's actually a pretty tragic outcome for all parties. 
Yes, Mike, and it certainly was looking that way for a while. And with the turmoil that descended after the US-British war in Iraq, you know, hope was pretty thin on the ground. But for Barzani and the Kurds, I'm glad to say there has been a sliver of light at the end of the tunnel. You know, most importantly, the status of Kurdistan as an autonomous region within Iraq, that was reconfirmed within the Federal Iraqi Republic Constitution in 2005, after the toppling of Saddam. And in the intervening 20 years or so, this new Kurdistan has pretty much been a, the only haven of stability and step-by-step prosperity in the region, even as the rest of the Near and Middle East has continued its chaotic demise. Remarkably, Mosul is once again very much seen as a Kurdish capital, and Mustafa's son, Masoud Barzani, the leader of the KDP, he was elected as the president of this new Kurdistan with a 66% of the popular vote in July 2009. A final recompense, if you like, for my man, Mustafa. And in fact, there's also now a recognised Kurdistan province in Iran, although it's not autonomous in the same way that the Iraqi province is. And during the Syrian civil war, Mikey, Kurdish forces were also able to take control of large sections of northern Syria and establish self-governing regions in that area too after the fall of ISIS. But of course, the major sticking point remains Turkey. Turkey. Yeah, and just how that Kurdish question in eastern Turkey is to be Resolved because until that happens, the chances of Turkey and its Western allies allowing Iraqi Kurdistan to push you for full independence, full nation status remain slim. So, I'm afraid with this one, Mikey, like so much in the Near and Middle East, I think you know we've got a lot more of this saga to run. A lot more indeed, mate. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right. So next week, Mikey, what have you got for us? Let me put it like this, Paul. It's time to break into your stash of tissue boxes, because we're going to be looking at Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes.